Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The pressure mounts on Governor Newsom to sign a farm workers union bill. One of the reasons this is so important is because of the intimidation that many of our farm workers feel. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Sewer leaks foul the San Diego River. The San Diego State study seems to indicate that it is leaky sewage pipes. Just a small amount of leak leaves a little bit of sewage on the outside of the pipe, and then when the rain comes in, it washes it all down into the oceans in the bay. The old downtown library is being prepped as a homeless shelter, and the legacy of a California town once known as a black utopia. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a journey through computation, data analysis, and real-world applications. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. Pressure is mounting on Governor Newsom to sign a bill that would allow farm workers to vote in private to unionize. In addition to farm workers themselves marching to Sacramento and holding vigils, national Democratic leaders like Speaker Nancy Pelosi and President Joe Biden have spoken in support of Assembly Bill 2183. But the governor has already expressed reservations about the bill. KPBS reporter Kitty Alvarado spoke with a farm worker who walked to the Capitol and a local farm owner about the legislation. Farm worker Xochitl Nunes proudly documents the last mile of her 335-mile journey. She leads a chant and procession of thousands towards the Capitol in Sacramento on August 26th. She walks in lockstep with labor leader Dolores Huerta. The very icon who coined the battle cry, Si Se Puede. Nunes says she made the 24-day pilgrimage in the sweltering heat to get Governor Gavin Newsom to sign AB 2183. But he didn't sign it, and now she and a few farm workers remain at the Capitol, holding vigil in hopes the governor will change his mind. El próximo paso para mí va a ser una huelga de hambre. She says, the next step for me is a hunger strike because he doesn't come out and say anything. If we're essential like he says we are, prove it. Nunes says she's angry that while the farm workers waited for their bill to be signed, the governor signed other legislation to protect fast food workers. 
Look, they're just asking for a safe way to vote for a union. That's Lorena Gonzalez-Fletcher with the California Labor Federation. She and her husband, San Diego County Board Supervisor Nathan Fletcher, walked with the farm workers for 35 miles. She says the bill is important because farm workers are in a far more vulnerable position than others who try to unionize. When a boss wants to retaliate, they often deport these workers. So what they're asking for is a safe, secret way by which they can vote in a union election and their boss doesn't know. We, the farmers, agree with three governors now that have vetoed this same bill. Al Staley is the owner of Staley Grove Management and is on the board of directors of the San Diego Farm Bureau. He grows avocados, grapes and tangos on his farm in Valley Center. He has 30 employees. I've been in business over 40 years, and some of my employees have been with me that long. Staley says this bill takes away the rights of farmers. We, the farmers, don't want to erode our private property rights by having to give access to the unions to the property, nor do we want to give up our free speech rights to be able to talk with our employees about any union organization. And he says it would also lead to pressure on farm workers. The mail-in ballot or the card check delivered by union organizers is just a formula for intimidation and arm twisting. Those arguments don't make sense to Nunes, who has few moments of rest between vigils at the Capitol. And even then, she's praying and pleading with the governor. Por favor, se lo pido de todo corazón. It's there in brief moments, she says, she allows herself to dream. About what the passage of the bill would mean for families like hers and the legacy left by her hero, Cesar Chavez, fuels her to fight on. Ese es el legado que a mí me dejó Cesar Chavez, que se pelea hasta con el alma y con la vida si es necesario. That's the legacy Cesar Chavez left me, she says, that you fight with your soul and your life if necessary. Kitty Alvarado, KPBS News. Joining me is California Assembly Majority Leader Eloise Gomez-Reyes. She's one of the authors of AB 2183, the Farm Workers Labor Voting Choice Act. And welcome. Thank you so much, Maureen. Thank you for having me. How are the provisions this bill presents for union elections different from the way farm workers unionize and vote now? Well, I think the biggest difference is that they will be allowed to vote by mail in lieu of polling in person. And one of the reasons this is so important is because of the intimidation that many of our farm workers feel. And farm workers feel that somebody is watching over them as they're voting and this is going to be used against them. So voting by mail is, I think, one of the key aspects of this. You mentioned intimidation, and I'm wondering what kinds of problems have farm workers encountered when they try to organize or vote in union elections? Well, during this 325-mile march that the farm workers did from Delano to the state capital, I did join them for a part of that, as did many of my colleagues. And we had a chance to talk to some of our farm workers 
uh, about what they thought this change would bring for them. Um, there were occasions that they talked about where the employer, they knew the employer was going to use it against them. Um, they also talked about the employers telling them everything that was wrong. And when the employers, as our farm workers told us, when the employers would put them together to, to talk about whatever the issue was, maybe it was safety, they would bring them together so they, have a, they would have a captive audience and then they would make comments regarding the union. Because of the way that it was done, the farm workers shared with us that they felt intimidation. And then we have the issue of uh, immigration status. And they felt that because the employer now knew that they were voting a particular way, that they, that they feared deportation. And that was very real. Um, it was from, from many of the, the farm workers that we spoke with during that march. Now, if farmers choose the labor peace election under this new proposal, union organizers can come on their property and the farmers won't be able to argue to their employees why they don't want a union. Many farmers strongly oppose these restrictions. So I'm wondering, is there anything in this new bill for farmers? It still allows them to give information that is accurate to the employees, to the farm workers. And I understand from our business groups and the agricultural employers um, that they, they feel that it's a false choice between two options. Neither one of them is going to maintain voting integrity and therefore that the employees are going to be manipulated. But the truth is that if the farm workers want to form a union and they are speaking to those uh, who are part of a union who will tell them the benefits of the union, they want to be able to, to then join that union without this fear. Um, and I, I, as I mentioned earlier, the fear is real. Now, you mentioned the integrity of the proposed mail-in election. Governor Newsom's office also has concerns about that. He says that's one of the reasons that he didn't sign it before and one of the reasons he may not sign it now. Did you consider amending the bill to address those concerns? Well, in his veto message of the prior bill, he did talk about inconsistencies and procedural issues. The issues, I think, have been addressed. And the author of the bill, uh, Assemblymember Mark Stone, worked with the administration. And I think that Governor Newsom now has before him a bill that makes a difference in the lives of farm workers. And I think in the end, employers, the agricultural industry is going to benefit. Because if you have employees who feel protected, employees who feel heard, employees who feel that they have someone who can speak on their behalf and they don't feel as powerless. They're happier uh, employees and they're still going to get the work done. But providing these protections and this representation to the employees is extremely important. A lot has gone into finally getting the language the way it is. Once it is implemented after the governor signs it, if something does come up that becomes a serious issue, there will be further discussion to really address it, as opposed to saying, oh, no, there's going to be a problem with the integrity of an election. I think there won't be. But if there is, then we can have cleanup legislation thereafter. Do you believe the governor will sign this bill? Personally, yes, I do believe he will sign it. I think that Governor Newsom uh, has 
signed a number of pieces of legislation that provide protections for individuals and for groups. And I think when you have people like Speaker Pelosi um, speaking in favor of it, when you have President Biden speaking in favor of it, um, I think that it would be, it's more likely than not that Governor Newsom, after his thoughtful reflection and review, um, I think that personally, I do believe he will sign it. I've been speaking with California Assembly Majority Leader Eloise Gomez-Reyes, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for the invitation. With more rainfall expected today, you can expect something else, too. Beach closures, thought to be caused by sewage contamination and runoff. And new study shows those closures near the San Diego River aren't being caused by sewage from septic tanks or nearby encampments, but by old sewage pipes that have been neglected and are now leaking. The study conducted by SDSU scientists calls for swift action. Joining me now is David Garrick, who's been covering this story for the San Diego Union-Tribune. And David, welcome. Thanks for having me. So this study points to old sewage pipes as the culprit behind bacterial outbreaks in the San Diego River that often lead to beach closures. How bad are these outbreaks and how bad are the pipes? Well, it sounds like they're maybe worse than anyone thought. I think conventional wisdom in the past was that that rainfall and stormwater when it went into the oceans and bays would create a higher level of bacteria because there was like motor oil and surface stuff on pavement. Um, And I think now that these studies are being done, I think it's sort of shifting our understanding. And maybe while motor oil is still a problem, it's more about a situation where the pipes are leaking slowly and, and then the rainwater washes whatever has leaked out into the bays and the ocean. And these pipes are more than 50 years old, right? Well, San Diego had a sort of building boom in the 60s and 70s. So a lot of the pipes were laid during that period with new housing developments. They vary in age, but there's a lot of them that are over 50 years old because they were built during that era. And where did officials previously think fecal contamination in the river was coming from? Uh, There's been a lot of theories. Some people threw out the idea of homeless encampments when they became a big deal because a lot of them are along the river and the river leads into the bays and the ocean. Um, And like I said, the surface runoff was the general idea. That's why car washing isn't allowed anymore unless you're in a place where there's proper drainage because the thought would be that a lot of that stuff would be on the pavement and then the rain would wash it in. But now it appears that these, these studies are pinpointing it more accurately and it seems likely, certainly the San Diego State study seems to indicate that it is leaky sewer pipes. Just a small amount of leak leaves a little bit of sewage on the outside of the pipe. And then when the rain comes in, it washes it all down into the oceans and the bay. And with so many possible sources of fecal contamination in the San Diego River, how was this study really able to rule out those sources and narrow it down to old sewer pipes being the cause? Yeah, and I'm not a scientist, but this sure seems clever to me. They, they studied uh, caffeine and then basically Splenda, the artificial sweetener, um, and they determined that how long that stayed in, in the, the water was determinant of, of the cause. And it's, it's very complicated. But the idea was that caffeine apparently dissipates very quickly from a water source. And they found high concentrations of caffeine in the polluted water. And if it was from a homeless encampment, it wouldn't have lasted that long. It had to be a fresh source, like a sewer pipe, because the sewer pipes had all the way down there. 
So the idea was that the caffeine was sort of like a red flag. Ah, if the caffeine is still in the in the contaminated water, must be it's a fresh source, not a homeless encampment miles up the river. And you know, one that's that's very interesting. Um, and you think one would think that water agencies from local governments would be responsible for repairing these pipes, but that might not be the case, right? Well, I mean, basically, you know, the cities, the municipal water agencies, the city of San Diego has a large one, but El Cajon and the Mesa and other cities, they, they will probably be responsible. The question is, you know, how does it happen and what is the smartest way? And another key thing that has to be studied is whether it's actually the sewer pipes that are controlled municipally or if it's the hookups that go from the municipal sewer system to the house. Those are called private laterals. That's a technical insider term, but it basically means pipes going from the sewer system to an individual house. If those are more at fault, then actually individual homeowners will have to fix them. And as you mentioned in your report, this SDSU study comes two years before a larger study is to be completed, which was ordered by the San Diego Regional Water Quality Board. Uh, Will it take two more years before anything is done about this? I guess so. I mean, I think the city would tell you, the city of San Diego would tell you that they're an ongoing process of replacing aging pipe and that they, you know, they also are always, they have ca- cameras on, on their pipes in case there's a, a, a sewage spill. In other words, like a, a, a pipe, instead of just a leak, it actually has a break, right? So I think they would say they're vigilant. But as far as a full scale plan to address this problem on a region wide basis, I think that's at least two years away, probably even longer. And you spoke with the city of San Diego about this. Where do these needed sewer repairs fall on the priority list there? Well, they say they're a high priority, but the city has has a lot of priorities. And, you know, this is something where uh, a couple days of beach closure is a big problem. But there are other problems the city faces like wildfires and, you know, other things. So I don't know. I think they say it's a priority. It's hard to know where it falls on the list. I've been speaking with David Garrick, reporter with the San Diego Union-Tribune. David, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. Earlier this year, Mayor Todd Gloria cited San Diego's growing homelessness problem as his administration's number one priority. Yet despite the mayor's push to target homelessness through law enforcement, a new iNews source report finds that zero convictions have been made by the city attorney's office. The disparity highlights a stark disconnect in priorities between the San Diego Police Department under the direction of Gloria and the city attorney's office in addressing homelessness. Joining me now with more is iNews source investigative reporter Cody Dulaney, who co-authored the story. Cody, welcome back to Midday Edition. Hey, thanks for having me. For months now, Mayor Gloria has touted efforts he's directed to address homelessness. Can you remind us what those tactics include and and how they've ramped up during the pandemic? It could be broken down into three categories. The first is outreach. Social workers are hitting the streets every day to connect people to the services they need. Secondly, we have cleaning. City sanitation crews are sweeping through homeless encampments. And they're forcing those who live in these encampments to move their belongings temporarily so they can quite literally sweep the sidewalk and throw away trash and property. 
And then we have law enforcement. And in these sweeps, San Diego police officers are, are always involved. And on one end of the spectrum, they could just be standing by to keep the peace as sanitation crews are doing what they're doing. But on the other end, they could be there strictly enforcing city laws that target unhoused people, such as sleeping where it's not allowed or blocking a public right of way. To enforce these laws, though, courts have said that police have to offer a shelter bed. And in San Diego, someone has to refuse that shelter bed four times before they can be arrested. But even so, we've seen a dramatic increase in arrests since the start of the pandemic. Has this police-led shelter-first approach been effective in getting unhoused San Diegans out of homelessness? It depends totally on who you ask. The mayor's office told me that this approach has helped place 700 people into housing from shelters, effectively ending their homelessness. But as I've reported, studies from around the country have consistently shown that this approach only makes it harder for people to find housing. Citations and arrests can lead to a, a cas cascade of legal trouble and fines, which only serves as a barrier to finding a home. Is that why the city attorney's office has declined to prosecute so many cases? The San Diego city attorney, Mara Elliott, her office is responsible for handling misdemeanors committed within the city limits. And that's what many of these offenses are. But along with my colleagues, Jake Harper and Danielle Dawson, we found that Elliott's office has refused to file charges in two out of every three cases since the start of the pandemic. Of the cases that the office has pursued, every single one has ended in dismissal. And that's often because we found through our reporting that the city attorney handling the case asked for it to be dismissed or agreed with the motion to dismiss. And you write that the lack of prosecutions points to a pretty clear disconnect between city-led enforcement efforts and the city attorney's office. Uh, what's behind this disparity? We spoke to some academics and researchers about what's going on here. And they say, you know, in an, in an ideal world, the police and the city attorney's office have the same priorities. Police know what evidence is required to bring a case to the city attorney. And along with elected leaders, the city attorney is on the same page about what these priorities are. But to take this approach that the city has taken, you know, citing and arresting people only to have these cases rejected or dismissed, those we talked to said it's a waste of resources only to show the public that something is being done to address the homelessness problem. Have you reached out to any of the agencies involved for clarity on this situation? Yes, my colleagues and I reached out to everyone involved with this, but none of them agreed to an interview. The mayor and city attorney had their spokespeople answer some questions over email. And the mayor's office basically said, look, it's, it's not his problem that these cases are being dismissed. Residents expect the city to enforce its laws, and that's exactly what officers are doing. And the city attorney's office says, well, these cases are being dismissed for a number of reasons, such as insufficient evidence or inability to locate witnesses, but they wouldn't comment on any particular case. And we certainly struggle to have an understanding of the larger picture of what's actually going on here. Has the pandemic changed the legal outcomes for this kind of case in any way? Prior to the pandemic, the city attorney's office managed to land a guilty plea 83% of the time in, in these cases that generally target unhoused people. Ever since August 2020, when you know courts started hearing these cases again, every single case since then has been dismissed. The city attorney's office wouldn't speak directly to what changed, other than to say changes to maximum sentencing and court diversion early last year are affecting how 
courts are handling these cases. And can you talk a little bit about what this whole process does to the individual unhoused resident? I mean, it seems like they're being shuffled around without much resolution or help. I mean, from what I've witnessed and the people I've talked to, it's an incredibly destabilizing and dehumanizing experience. In many cases, people are being criminalized for surviving in public view. They're ticketed and arrested when they refuse shelter. But many of the people who are living on the streets simply cannot go into a shelter for various reasons. They have a mental illness or a substance abuse disorder that's, that's you know, restricting access to that. And, and once they're arrested, we found that they often don't show up in court, which only leads to a warrant for their arrest and more legal trouble. So it's just, it's a cycle. It's an endless cycle that we're seeing. I've been speaking with iNews Source investigative reporter Cody Dulaney. Cody, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. After years of debate, the city of San Diego is taking initial steps to convert the old downtown library building on 8th and E into a homeless shelter. Mayor Todd Gloria's office says the city has begun modest preparations to repurpose the building. Over the nine years the library has sat vacant, advocates have pressed the city to open up the building to house unsheltered people. But those requests have been turned down for a host of reasons. Now the city says it's hoping to have a portion of the building ready for use as a shelter this winter. I'm joined by Voice of San Diego reporter Lisa Halverstadt. And Lisa, welcome. Thanks for having me again on this topic. So has the city given any indication as to why using the old library as a shelter is looking more attractive to them now? Well, Maureen, I think it's really important to point out that advocates have been clamoring basically since this old library closed in 2013 to have the city look at putting a shelter there. And for nine years, it's been sitting empty and homeless camps have been building up around it, just essentially putting an exclamation point on that. And so last year, obviously, we all know the homelessness situation has been worsening, including in this area. Mayor Todd Gloria had directed city staff to take another look and see, could it be a shelter? He said he didn't want to leave any stone unturned as he was was looking at options. And recently, the city's fire marshal approved a portion of the building to serve as a shelter for six months during the winter season. And that in and of itself is a big deal because for many years, city staff had flagged a number of issues saying that it couldn't be a shelter, that there was just too much um, that needed to be done to make the building workable. What do the modest preparations to the building consist of? Apparently, um, the facilities department in the city is building out the former lobby area of the library. So they're doing some demolitions and some minor electrical work. They're replacing and repairing some windows and doors, um, installing heaters. Obviously, that's important um, for a winter shelter. And they're also working on some interior walls. What I'm hearing is that they expect to have the work done um, next month, and it's probably going to cost about $35,000. So what are some of the many reasons the city has given through the years that this library could not be used as a shelter? Well, there have sure been a laundry list. So they've talked about plumbing issues, heating and cooling issues. Those are just a few examples. I could go on and on. And at one point when Mayor Kevin Faulkner was in office, his administration had suggested that it would cost at least $5 million to upgrade it. Now, at the time, they were looking at 450 shelter beds. So I think that's important to note. 
Um, for now, they're certainly looking at a smaller number of initial beds. But then there was this other issue that came up um, that I learned about at the beginning of 2020. And that is that there's this 1899 deed restriction signed by civic leader George Marston. If you haven't heard of him, Google him. He sold this property to the city way back when. And this deed restriction that he signed seems to require that the property house a public library and a reading room. And that really complicated plans and another sort of redevelopment plan for the old library. Yeah, the Marston deed restriction, it sounds like something you'd read in a novel about an old family will, but it has actually stopped other plans to redevelop the building, hasn't it? It sure has. So fast forward, or I should say rewind um, back to circa 2019-2020, Lincoln Property Company had wanted to make this old library into an office campus. But they said that they found out about this deed restriction and title companies wouldn't insure them with that restriction. And they found out, you know, because of course, at the time when I figured this out, I said, well, could you just add a reading room to the project? And they said, nope, that would not suffice. And the city at the time said that they thought that this issue could be worked out, but the developer was just at its wits end. So more recently, Uh, the mayor and the city attorney's office decided that they wanted to address this issue because the building has just been sitting there, you know, and this deed restriction certainly scuttled some plans. They decided to go ahead and file a court action to try to clarify that the old library can be something other than a library. Now, just this week, the downtown San Diego partnership said their most recent count showed a record number of homeless people, 1,600 living unsheltered, many in makeshift tents downtown. Can you give us an idea of what that area around the old city library looks like these days? Tents surround many of the blocks right around the library and the post office across the street. And until recently, people almost daily were staying right outside the front entrance of the old library. So this has become a major center of homelessness downtown. And to just, you know, really underscore that, the city set up a public restroom right outside the front of the library. And in more recent history, they have been citing public restrooms based on the volume of people that are in a particular area. So I think that really speaks to just how many people have been staying outside near this old library. Considering that there have been so many delays already, and I guess that the Marston deed restriction could slow down the process, do you think it's realistic that the city could get that old library converted to a shelter by this winter? Well, they're really hoping to, but they have said, you know, at least initially wanted to get a court's blessing before they move in shelter beds. However, Maureen, you and I both know court cases can move very slowly. The court doesn't necessarily go along with the deadlines that anyone wants. There is an initial hearing in the case next month, but no decisions are imminent. For now, the city is really hoping that they could try to move forward with something in November. Now, Lisa, overall, How prepared would you say San Diego is to provide shelter this winter to the record number of homeless people across the city? Well, first off, the number of people sleeping on the street each night has been rising, especially downtown. And Mayor Gloria has been pushing for more shelter beds overall. And and by my quick count, I think the city has added about 300 new shelter beds since last December. So that's 
worth noting. But certainly there are more people on the street than there are shelter beds. I think I would also note that it's been less certain in recent years that the city will have extra beds available when there's cold, rainy, inclement weather. So historically, you know, the city would open up additional shelter beds for people to come in and have a safe, warm place to be on cold nights. Those were a lot harder to deliver during the worst of COVID. And last year, the city provided fewer inclement weather beds than it had in years past. I will say I'm hearing more conversations earlier about these beds this year, and the library is part of that. So this is something I'll definitely be monitoring in the weeks to come. I've been speaking with Voice of San Diego reporter Lisa Halberstadt. And Lisa, thank you. Thank you. One of the bills that has passed through the legislature and is on Governor Gavin Newsom's desk would offer cash benefits to unemployed, undocumented workers currently excluded from the state's unemployment insurance program. It's an idea that not so many years ago would be considered out of the question. Today, it's a different story. Here's KQED's Farida Jabala Romero. The bill would create a one-year pilot program in 2024, offering undocumented Californians who lose jobs $300 per week, up to 20 weeks. Before the state Senate voted to approve AB 2847 last month, lawmakers were given one last opportunity to voice any opposition. Members, discussion or debate? Seeing and hearing none, Madam Secretary, please call the roll. There was no registered opposition from the public either, but nine Republican state senators did vote against the bill, like Brian Daly, who represents the northeast corner of California, and worries a program like this would lack enough checks and balances to prevent fraud. I will guarantee you there will be fraud in this system, and once there's the fraud, the money's gone and it's hurting California businesses. The bill does provide funding for the government to set up a documentation process for undocumented workers to prove their eligibility. It's a big job. In California, more than one million workers are undocumented, and the pandemic highlighted how essential they are in industries like agriculture, construction, manufacturing. That's why Paul Shedden supports the bill. He co-owns a company that makes guitar accessories in Petaluma. He says the tight labor market impacts the parts manufacturing companies he relies on. He says it would help small businesses like his if California made it easier for undocumented workers to stay during economic downturns. If we do take care of them, it means they're more likely in the event that they are sick or unemployed because no fault of their own to stay around so that when the economy picks up, we we need then undocumented workers to resume those positions. They're here to do that. What you hear Shedden saying, essentially, is a growing recognition that undocumented people are an important part of California's economy. It's this reality that's led to the political sea change a bill like AB 2847 represents in Sacramento, compared to 1994, when Californians overwhelmingly voted to restrict benefits for the undocumented, says Kevin Johnson, dean of the UC Davis School of Law. With a robust economy, a robust budget, and a tight labor market, we're even more appreciative or understanding of the benefits of immigrant workers than in other times. At a summer rally in Sacramento for AB 2847, 
Jose Rodriguez and other immigrants called for unemployment benefits in return for the estimated $3.5 billion in state and local taxes undocumented people in California pay each year. Rodriguez spent months unemployed after the restaurant in San Rafael where he waited tables closed. Like so many undocumented early in the pandemic, his income disappeared when the economy constricted. He and his wife fell behind on rent and relied on food banks to feed their two U.S.-born kids. Y aportamos mucho para la economía de este país. Firma esa ley, ayúdalos un poquito también. His message to the governor, we do a lot for this country. Help us a little bit as well. That was KQED's Farida Jabvala Romero. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. About 30 minutes off Interstate 5 in the Central Valley, there's a town that's a vital part of California's history and black history in the U.S. It's called Allensworth, and it was founded as a kind of black utopia back in 1908. It was self-governed by black residents, and for a while, it was thriving. These days, though, Allensworth is a dusty, tiny farmworker town that's struggling to survive. Hardly anyone visits or even knows about the state park there that was built to commemorate black history. But preserving Allensworth's history and legacy has come up in meetings of California's Reparations Task Force. From the California Report magazine, reporter Lakshmi Sara introduces us to some of today's Allensworth residents fighting to preserve the town's history and its future. Maxine Butler is the first person I meet on the train. We board in Emeryville near Oakland for the four and a half hour ride to Colonel Allensworth State Park for the Juneteenth Festival. I help her with her bags and her walker and soon she's offering me fruit and we're sharing stories and songs. This train is bound for glory, this train. Maxine, who's now 70 and lives in North Oakland, told me her sister-in-law's family moved from Arkansas to Allensworth in the 1930s. Escaping the lynchings, escaping the after-effects of slavery. And they probably heard about this Jerusalem, this promised land called Allensworth. For Maxine, the journey to Allensworth is important for another reason. Doctors gave her a terminal diagnosis just days before. She's been battling metastatic cancer. They said she has six months to live. And I have my bucket list, and and this is on the bucket list, to go to Allensworth. I felt honored to help document a part of her bucket list. Maxine comes from a long line of pioneering black families. My grandfather, Charles Nicholas Moore Sr., was the first African-American streetcar conductor in the state of Massachusetts. But Maxine is disappointed that so many of these kinds of pioneers aren't well known, especially when it comes to Allensworth. Steal away, steal away, horse. Ladies and gentlemen, when we get to Allensworth, we will be making multiple stops to let people off in every car. The platform will not be big enough to fit the entire train. Again, we will be making multiple stops. There's no official platform here, 
just a slab of concrete. The stop at Colonel Allensworth State Historic Park is only for special occasions, like Juneteenth, or if a group makes a special request to Amtrak. Just beyond the state park is the town, population 500. It doesn't have any stores or stoplights, there's no grocery store or any other shops, and the closest hotel is 20 minutes away. Maxine and I get off the train. Oh, I'm just blessed, blessed, blessed the anticipation. I see the promised land, oh my God. I can only imagine what they saw, a blank slate, and how they created this. I just imagine what it was. Every building in the park is preserved to look like it did in 1908, most with nearby structures that were once outhouses. Hi, hi, come on in. Yes, the Carter initials and a, one of the desks. At the old schoolhouse, there are rows of wooden desks, each with a small chalkboard. We walk in to look for a name carved into one of the desks. Gloria Harris, Maxine's relative who went to school here in the 1930s. My sister-in-law's family stayed here, and I have a picture of my sister-in-law's mother in front of this building. Though we couldn't find the initials in the desk, Maxine confirmed through a school record book that Gloria did attend the school. This is the basics for making us square-head nails. At many of the festivals, the park hires volunteers to showcase what Allensworth was like in 1908, like demonstrating blacksmithing. So before they had the modern nails, this is the way they made the nails. But if you visit the park on a day when there isn't a celebration, it's much quieter. You can't walk into any of the buildings, just look through the windows. Hello, and welcome to the Colonel Allensworth State Historic Park cell phone tour. And call a number for some recorded history. This busy station was a vital part of town life. Most important, freight shipments supported the town's economy. In December 1913... Over at the portable that serves as the visitor center, I meet park interpreter Gerilyn Oliveira. We like the quiet. (laughs) It's one of the reasons we like working at the park, too. She leads tours of the state park and shares how one of the factors in the town's demise was the expansion of the train line to a nearby town in 1914. They added tracks over to the little community of Alpal, which is west of here by about seven miles, and all the agricultural product was being transported from Alpal instead of Allensworth. So the money started slowing down, dwindling up, and then the train stopped stopping here in 1929. What Gerilyn doesn't include is that the train service was rerouted through the neighboring white town of Alpaw. And that, say critics, is one of the problems with the park's version of the history. It's not so much sugarcoating it, they're not saying what actually happened. The park ranger spoke about the history of the community But he spoke more about the type of corsets women wore during that time. I felt uh, insulted. Uh, Promote history. Promote it, promote the history, promote the culture, and help people see it for themselves. Just promote the history. Dennis Hudson and Denise Kadara are twins and Allensworth residents who moved here in the 1970s with their mom. She was a Black activist who wanted to preserve Allensworth's legacy. Now they're in their 60s. Dennis is an Army veteran and farmer, and Denise has years of experience as a city planner. They're both active with the Allensworth Progressive Association. 
They feel like the stories they've heard park rangers tell about their town don't give the full picture. The version of Allensworth history that emphasizes what a beautiful black utopian town this used to be, a self-sufficient, joyful place. They had a library book exchange, books from all over the state, not just black communities, but from all over the state were coming here because education was important. Dennis and Denise are concerned the official park narrative doesn't explain the structural reasons why the town didn't survive. The downfall of Allensworth happened. The railroad spur was diverted to another community. The water was never delivered as the contracts agreed. Black farmers also had to pay almost five times as much as white farmers for land. You know, any way that you can keep a community down, it seems like Allensworth has had to deal with that. The more I talk to Dennis and Denise, the more it becomes clear that the demise of what Allensworth used to be is the result of a series of actions by state and local powers. A town squeezed into submission, a clear result of institutional racism that forced this black community to dwindle and is still making life difficult for the largely Latinx farmworker population of the town today. Everybody wants to live in a community that provides for their essentials, and this is a food desert, and we're trying to change that. This community lacks an economy. We're trying to change that. It lacks an, a tax base. We're trying to change that. And all we want to do here is bring the community back and make it a, a thriving community once again. According to Denise, Allensworth has been battling structural racism for more than 100 years, and one of the clearest examples is that the town still doesn't have safe drinking water. That story from reporter Lakshmi Sara. Hear how water plays a vital role in the town's survival. You can listen to the full episode on the California Report magazine podcast. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.